0: not want Jerusalem to be able to be defended. They do not want the walls and the gates built back. And so chapter 4 describes the opposition. Now, there's a way in which we can kind of divide up chapter 4. Look at verse 1. Now, it came about that when Sanballat heard, look at verse 7, now when these various groups heard, look over verse 15, now when our enemies heard, so you've got that same phrase three times in the chapter, and we'll kind of use that to divide. Now, that's a, that's a format, that when they heard, that's used a few other times in Nehemiah 2. That's kind of a typical expression. But when they hear, when they find out and understand how well the work is going, they go into action in various ways. So would somebody read chapter 4, verses 1 to 6?
1: Now when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers in the army of Samaria, what are these evil Jews doing? They will restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burn ones at that? Tobiah the Amnite was beside him, and he said, Yes, what they are building, if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Mm -hmm. Hear, O God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up. Be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt, and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So we built the wall, and all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work.
0: Well, God's work seldom goes forward without opposition. Sanballat seems to be the leader of the opposition, and uh, what's his attitude? Yes, he's very upset with them rebuilding the wall. In fact, he's just enraged. Now, what tactic does he use right here to try to stop it? Discouragement. Give me another word. Demoralizing. Give me another word. Mocking. Ridicule. Belittling. I mean, look at some of the things he says. He just starts barraging them with these uh, rhetorical questions, you know. What are these people Jews doing? Are they going to restore it for themselves? You know, this is some kind of a do-it-yourself sort of a job. You know, I do really think they can do this thing. You know, he says... Uh, are they are they going to restore it for themselves? Can they offer sacrifices? Do they think they're just going to pray that wall up? You know, uh, can they finish in a day? You know, have any idea what they're getting into? There's no one day job. You know, they can't possibly rebuild this wall. You know, he says, can they revive the stones from the dusty rubble, even the burned ones? Where are they going to find the stones? And so he's just trying to ridicule, just just belittle them and. And, and say yeah, they can't possibly do that. What in the world are they thinking? Now, why does he do that? Yeah, Lucas. Yeah, to get them demoralized, to get them to feel I don't know, sort of like they can't do it. Maybe also to rally his side to have more morale. It's got to be really discouraging to all the enemies to see that wall going up. Um, how much fact do you have to have to ridicule? You know, ridicule and mocking doesn't have to be on, based on one shred of evidence. And so he can, you can say anything you want to in that. Now, I want you to think about something. If the questions he's asking in verse 2 really mean that they don't have a chance, they don't have a clue, they couldn't possibly rebuild that wall, does it strike you in verse 1 that he would be so furious and so angry? It seems to me that... uh, He is so upset that it's almost calling into question whether he believes his own ridicule. You know, if he thought it was just a laughing matter, he might not have bothered to laugh. The fact that he's so enraged and so determined to mock them makes me think that he knows they're really doing something. If you're going to uh, have a really crushing uh, taunt, it needs to be really cool. And kind of dismissive and light-hearted. I think he sort of overdoes it here. And it almost betrays the fact that he really thinks that something serious is happening here. And he brings this visiting statesman in, Tobiah the Ammonite. What does he say about it?
1: Even if the fox went over, it would break.
0: <laughs> How big are foxes? You know... Can you imagine a fox running up against a wall and it just come tumbling down? You know, we don't think of a fox as being a, a very uh, powerful animal in that way. Now maybe, there's a couple of passages that talk about foxes, you know, kind of inhabiting ruins. Uh, there's the passage in Ezekiel 13.4 and Lamentations 5.18, maybe he's implying that the foxes would live there because it was going to still be in ruins but I think the more important idea is this wall, wall is being so poorly built that even a fox could knock it down <laughs> you know I think it's that kind of an idea but again if that's true then don't worry about it you don't need to mock it if a fox could knock it down surely you could so if that's all it amounts to you know when they're really ridiculing you It's probably a sign that they don't really think you're as weak or as incompetent or whatever as what they're uh, laughing at. What's Nehemiah's response to this? In prayer? He prays to God. You know, that's Nehemiah's response to almost everything. Great, great thing in that. You'd always say, that's how you ought to respond to opposition. The first thing you do is pray. The first thing you should do in almost any situation, turn to the Lord. Well, can you think of a situation where turning to the Lord would not be the right response? You know, so he turns to God. However, what he says to God might be a little um, you know, upsetting to us. He says, return their reproach on their own heads and give them up for plunder in a land of captivity. Do not forgive their iniquity. And let not their sin be blotted out before you, for they have demoralized the builders. Well, so what's he telling God, what's he asking God to do? Yeah, destroy them, don't forgive them, you know, uh, make them captives. Uh, Is that a very nice thing to pray about somebody? Do you think it's right that he prays like this?
2: David did the same thing. He did? Where? Um, in several mm-hmm. of the
0: Psalms. Okay, you've got a lot of Psalms that do similar things. Look for a minute at Psalm 139. Um and, and these the psalms, some of these psalms that are, we call them imprecatory psalms. That just means a cursed psalm. There are psalms that ask God to punish the enemy in one way or another. Some of them are quite strong language, even. Um, psalm 139, verse 21. This is a psalm of David. He says, Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with the utmost hatred. They have become my enemies. Well, should we hate what God hates? Yeah, we should. (laughs) Now, you know, we've kind of gotten in this uh, culture that says you're supposed to love everything and be nice to everything. I can imagine getting to the point where a mother, you know, when her, her little boy says, uh, you know, I hate Satan. No, oh, you're not supposed to hate anybody, you know. Well, we are supposed to hate Satan. We are supposed to be against the things the Lord's against. And what's, what's popular up here? Football popular? Baseball popular? What's more popular? Probably
3: basketball.
0: Basketball, really? Basketball more popular up here? Baseball. baseball. Football Who's your favorite baseball team? Boston is big? Who's Boston's biggest rival? The Yankees. All right, how many are Boston fans? How many are Yankees fans? Well, we're about even. Okay, Jonathan, what do you think about Boston? Do you really root for Boston to win? Zach, what do you think about the Yankees? They're annoying. Yeah, (laughs) they're annoying. That was a nice way to put that. You know, how can you want your team to win and not want their enemy to lose? For one thing, if you're playing each other. Well, I mean, if you win, the enemy loses. And really, I mean, if you're kind of uh, in the same league... Then the more your enemy wins, the harder it's going to be for you to win, you know, in the pennant race or whatever. So you really want your enemy to lose. I mean, can you imagine fighting a war and saying, boy, I sure hope our enemies don't lose too bad. You know, I I, I really, I really, I hate it that that they're suffering. I, I really, you know, I want them to win too. Can you do that in a war? How could you want them to win too? Well, we're in this war, the Lord against Satan, righteousness against evil, and these people who are opposing the rebuilding of the wall. This is not Nehemiah's pet project. It wasn't that just Nehemiah loved walls, and so he was working on this like he'd work on a bunch of Legos trying to get something worked, worked up. He's doing this for the Lord. He loves the Lord. He loves the Lord's house. He wants the Lord's house to be honored and protected. And the people who were against the Lord, he was against. He hated those who hated the Lord. Now, we need to really have the same attitude God has. Uh, it's, It's hard for me to see how we shouldn't think about things the way the Lord does. He's our model. So you think about this. Does the Lord love or hate Evil people. And? He, there's a sense in which he does both. It seems to me like you could you could kind of crystallize it this way. The Lord loves the world. I mean, John 3.16, that's why he sent Jesus to die. He wants wicked people to repent and come to him so he can save them. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. The Lord loves the lost. But what if a lost person refuses to repent, refuses to humble himself, refuses to turn to God, then what does the Lord do? He hates them. And he doesn't just hate their deeds, he hates them. Now, with that balance, with that first priority, he loves them and he wants them to be saved. But if they are going to refuse, and if they never submit, then he wants them to be punished. That's what ought to happen. We can see it a little easier. If you think about somebody who hurts people, you know think about some person in a position of authority who's taking advantage of, of young innocent people and hurting them in very cruel ways. You know, think about a Hitler. Who put a ton of Jews in concentration camps and all that. Should somebody like that be punished? Yes, they should. Should we say, well, you know, we we, we 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 don't want to hurt them. We don't want them to be sad. Well, they ought to be punished. Righteousness demands that. And God wants to punish those who refuse to repent. Who continue to not honor him and hurt others. And so I think it's right for Nehemiah to pray this prayer. Look with me for a minute at Revelation 19. Revelation talks a lot about the wrath of God. I just think this passage is helpful just to see that you've got the same attitude in the New Testament. Because some people say, well, in the Old Testament, yes. They were uh, against the enemies, but in the New Testament, we shouldn't be. Well, in in 19.1 depends on understanding the context of Revelation somewhat, but after these things I heard something like a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, because his judgments are true and righteous, for he has judged the great harlot who is corrupting the earth with her her immorality, and he has avenged the blood of his bondservants on her, and a second time they said, Hallelujah, her smoke rises up forever and ever. They are praising God that the smoke of Babylon rose up forever and ever, that she was reduced to just smoke going up. We want God to win. We rejoice when the enemies of God's purpose lose. And that's a part of wanting God to win. Do you have some thoughts or comments on all that? Jeff? I'm struggling a little bit with this, but um, let's
3: see if I can... Psalm 97, verse 10, hate evil you who love the Lord. Loving the Lord requires us to be evil. And I think of that in a way that if there's something destructive to someone I love, well, I hate that thing. If my, if my wife has a cancerous tumor. My child has a cancerous tumor. I hate that tumor. I, I have no good feelings about that anymore. I want it to go away. When we come to the idea of people... And God's creatures, he doesn't love them, doesn't hate them. I think maybe there's a difference in this sense. If that tumor goes away and is destroyed, I'm, I'm glad about it and I'm not grieved about it in one bit. Uh, God sees the necessity to destroy those who would destroy those he loves. But we would not be asked to say, nonetheless, God's grieved at their loss. And I think of Jesus lamenting Jerusalem, in uh, Matthew 23, 37, he's talking about Jerusalem's going to be destroyed. The people are going to be suffering. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, that kills the prophets and stones them that are sent under her. How often would I have gathered your children together, even as a hen, gathering your chicken under her wings, and you would not. Jesus, again, this destruction is going to happen. It needs to happen. And in that sense, you could say he, he turns his hate upon the city. But there is a, a lamentation, it seems to me, grieved
0: by that Alpha. Um, am I on track? Yeah, I mean, I think so. I think that's a part of God loving the world. You know, His love for man means that He wants them to be saved. He grieves when they refuse His offer of salvation. His, his seeking them. Uh, I, 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 I think you have, as we often do. Various emotions when they absolutely refused to repent when they they you know filled the cup of wrath up to the end by crucifying Jesus then God turned to execute His wrath against them and He wanted them to be punished. Um, I, that may be a part of phases. There may be more complexity than that. You know, there are many different emotions that arise, right, but God never. Um, you know, wants the wicked people to win too. You know, he never wants them, well, yeah, but but we we love them. We, we don't want to, to see them punished. You know, God does want to see wickedness punished. He would prefer the repentance so they could be saved, but if they refuse that, then he wants to see them punished. But there's a lot of different angles on that. Yeah.
3: Psalm 58, 10 11, the righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He'll wash his feet from the blood of the wicked. And men will say, surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God who judges on earth. That helps me a little bit because while it uh, talks about God's people being glad the wicked are being punished, it's, it's not a, a personal animosity or vengeance. It's rather a a confirmation that there is a righteous God. If God were not going to punish the wicked, how do I know
0: I can tell God about anything? Yes. Yes, that's exactly right. And I think it's very important that we not think in terms of, this is just like my personal enemy, like they insulted me, and so I don't like them because of that our opposition to wicked people and what they do is because of our love for God and because of what they're doing to the Lord. This can't be a personal vendetta kind of a thing. But I do think, since we love God, we oppose that which is against God, and anyone or any force that refuses to submit to God, we want them to lose. And so I think in that sense, it was appropriate for Nehemiah to pray this. I suspect most of the the passages like this in the Bible use stronger language than what we're really comfortable with. That probably, in my judgment, is a sign that all of us are a bit more influenced by our culture than what we think. You know, I also would, I can say everything I've said pretty comfortably, saying it exactly how Nehemiah does and how some of the imprecatory psalms do, would be very uncomfortable for me. But I think that's where I need to grow to really love and have a greater passion and zeal for God and maybe see more deeply the evil and wickedness of anything that's against God. Um, You know, it's a little hard for sinners to appreciate God's wrath against sin because we are somewhat compromised in how we look at it. I know it was always interesting to me. I spent a lot of time in prison as a visitor, not as a resident <laughs> but uh, but you know in there, it was so interesting to see the attitude of many of the of the guys in there, and prisoners are just people too. I got very close to many of them, but but the way they looked at judges was so different than the way that I looked at judges. you know they really they thought highly of the judges that i didn 't <laughs> you know the ones that would let the criminal off the hook from my perspective. Were the ones they saw as sympathetic and compassionate and fair minded and things like that. Obviously, from their perspective, it changed how they looked at that. And uh, I always thought I was right about that because, you know, justice ought to be done. But the more involved we are in doing wrong things, the more it kind of warps our view of how things ought to be. <laughs> Justin? There's a counterpart to me
1: in mind. In 2 Chronicles 19, it's reviewed
2: review for his relationship with Ahab. And it, it says, you know, uh, Nehemiah
1: talks about uh, being against these. You read from Psalm 139, where those those speak the Lord. Here he rebuked, Jehoshaphat is rebuked, saying, Should you help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord? Yeah. Uh, he had a, a really close relationship with Ahab. Was he willing to go with Ahab to do something God had said? if you do this with die. Rebellion against God and
3: Joshua I said, Yeah, although we can do that. Joshua was a good king, he made some really bad choices in
1: relationships there, and loved those
0: people. That yeah, great point. Yeah, that's a good passage. Gary, will you your hand? Up?
1: I was just thinking about this passage in Malachi, which is about the same time frame from Nehemiah. One of the problems in Malachi's day is that the people weren't doing what Nehemiah did, making this distinction, and looking ahead to the day of the Messiah. Matthew three eighteen. Then what? For you the a distinction between the righteous and the wicked, and one who serves God and one who does not serve. We need to make that distinction humbly, carefully. Maybe sometimes you mistake and make that distinction.
0: But that distinction some God's. Amen. Thank you. I think it's very helpful, and we struggle to do that. I think that is very hard for us. You know, we just. You know, we're in this mentality where, well, there's good in everybody. And everybody, you know, they may be mistaken or they may be misguided, but there's nobody who's really wrong. Nothing's really sinful. Everything's kind of beautiful in its own way. I think we're very affected by that kind of thinking, even if we would not prefer that way of expressing it. I I think trying to go back and just read Scripture a lot and think about the attitudes that, that we should have from the scriptures will help us. Lee? I think in influence of the stuff to us is not a part of the way we perhaps want to commit. And I know it's pretty much
1: the rule in the evangelical Christian world that we well, often get commitments to naturalism. While your neighbor I can tell, one of the most important things you can do is the
0: greatest commitment to love God. Amen. Yeah, amen. JD
1: happened just Nehemiah four or five. Do you think he's? I, I don't think he's saying they, they can't.
0: Don't, don't let them repent. Don't let them ask forgiveness. He's just saying if they're if they're not repenting, don't act like they're repenting. Don't out their sins when they're in wickedness. And they are not repenting. That is the point. If they were repenting, that'd be. All, he'd said say something totally different. They are not. They are opposing God's work. You know, one thing that you might get out of this, just think about this for a minute. We need so much to have a biblical balance in what we think and say. And our tendency is to look at one side of what the Bible says about something. Sometimes that's a reaction to other things. Sometimes it's just how we want to see it. Reading through the Bible And continuing to give full weight to everything that's said is really helpful in balancing us. You know, because if we don't, we tend to be just kind of warped. And so we need to have to go through Nehemiah and see these passages and deal with them. And it it challenges us. Now there probably have been some periods and there are probably some people that they would look only at those things and they wouldn't look at Matthew 23 and Jesus' attitude toward Jerusalem. And that would be imbalanced in that way. So we always need to try to understand it all and accept it all. Joe? Maybe I missed a thing. Would we
1: also not want to think about a difference between people who are sinning, people who are even not repentant, but then there's another degree of those who are militant against God's Word. The second Thessalonians only talks about those who are unreasonable and wicked who were trying to support uh, the Word of God. Uh, it seems like there's a, there's a further degree, sort of the difference between somebody who maybe is in some error versus a false teacher. Uh, and it seems like a lot of these passages are really dealing with militants against God.
0: Yeah, that, that's a fair statement. There's probably, there's some sense in which all who refuse to submit to God are militant against him. But clearly, Nehemiah is saying this about the people who are doing everything they can to keep the wall from being rebuilt, to to respect and honor God and protect his house. So this they are even, they're not just passively rebellious, they are actively Seeking to destroy God's work—that is a—that's a fair statement here for sure. Okay, so what do they do? They built—we built the wall. <laughs> uh, you know, it, it's gotten up to half height. You know, we're making progress. For the people to have a mind to work, which of course has to be done. Let Sanballat and Tobiah do what they will. This wall won't get rebuilt unless we got a mind to work and we keep working on it. And they do. So that's the first stage. Look at the next section. You would hope that since they keep building and they don't give in to the taunts, that would kind of silence the enemies. But it really doesn't.
2: 7 to 14. Now in Samballot, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the Ashdodites heard that the repair of the walls of Jerusalem went on and that the breaches began to be closed. They were very angry. And all of them conspired together to come and fight against Jerusalem and cause a disturbance in it. But we prayed to our God, and because of them, we set up a guard against them, day and night. Thus in Judah it was said, the strength of the burden bearers is failing. Yet there is much rubbish, and we ourselves are unable to rebuild the wall. Our enemies said, they will not know or see until we come among them, kill them, and put a stop to the work. When the Jews who lived near, near them came and told us ten times, they will come, come up against you from every place where you may turn. Then I stationed men in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, the exposed places, and I stationed the people and families with their swords, spears, and bows. When I saw their fear, I rose and spoke to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people. Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses.
0: All right, so look at the opposition. Wow, they're pretty much surrounded the San- Sanballat would have probably been in the Samaria area on the north, the Arabs on the south, the Ammonites on the east, the Ashdodites on the west. And um, they are deciding to do what? They're angry and decide to do what? They're going to conspire and fight. Evidently, It's going to take more than ridicule and foxes to stop this wall from being rebuilt. They decide to arm themselves, and they'll fight uh, the Israelites who are working on the wall. I say that shows they're taking pretty desperate uh, measures here. After all, we know, and they should know, that Order Xerxes had given a decree for this to be done. They are actually risking now getting on the wrong side of the Persian emperor. What's Nehemiah's response to this threat? Yes, yes. He prays. (laughs) Again, is there any situation in which Nehemiah doesn't first pray? And is there any situation in which we should not first pray? He prays and. Yeah, Lucas? I don't know that they would have admitted that. Maybe they do know that deep down. They know the work's progressing, but they prayed and did what? Set a guard. Set a guard. Now, if you pray, why set a guard? You know, we talked about the other night. Praying to God and acting go together. Trusting God does not mean that I do not do what I can we can trust God and continue to set up sensible precautions. That's, we're not saying to God when we pray, give me my daily bread, God floated down to me on a cloud, I'm not planning on working. God intends for us to work for our daily bread, and yet he's the ultimate provider. He, he provides based upon certain conditions. Should we pray to God to fill us with a knowledge of his will? Anybody study Colossians 1 yesterday? So I don't need to study. I'll just pray to God to fill us with the knowledge of his will. No. God fills us with the knowledge of his will when we fulfill the condition of studying and and seeking to know. So when they pray to God, that doesn't mean we don't need to set up a guard. But it does mean that they give God the glory for the protection and they don't think it's all because of their guard. And so they do that. That's not the only problem. I'll tell you, when problems come, they just seem to come in whole bunches. You know, so you've got the enemy threatening. And then in verse 10, people were saying the strength of the burden bearers is failing, yet there's much rubbish and we ourselves are unable to rebuild the wall. They're getting discouraged because of what? Exactly. Tired and overwhelmed by the magnitude of the work. You know, the initial enthusiasm is sort of waning. Isn't it easier to get up to start something and, you know, really get psyched up to start it than to keep going when it starts getting hard and long and it still seems like there's such a long way to go? You know, all this debris, the huge stones. You know, we're never going to get this done. It's hard work. You know, it is, it's, it really almost takes more strength to endure and keep going than it takes to start. You know, in Colossians 1, you know, strengthen with God's mighty power for endurance. You know, it takes a lot of strength to keep going, sometimes more. It's hard because it's discouraging. You start something, you're excited. You keep going, and it just seems like it's never going to end. And it's hard, and I don't see much progress. That's where they were at. And, and so they were thinking more about their weakness than God's strength. And in verse 11, compound that with the enemies continuing to threaten and bluster and, and rumoring attack. And the Jews who lived near them, in verse 12, really helpful. They came and told us ten times, they will come up against you from every place where you will turn. You know, these friends, you know, keep imparting these negative assurances that, well, they're going to attack you. Come on, they're going to attack you. We know. They keep telling us they're going to attack you. You know, ten times they spread the rumor, we're going about to get attacked. You know, so it's not enough. It's, it, it's like, it's, it's hard enough to to have to remove all the debris and keep carrying on the work, and now they're going to be slaughtered while they're doing it. You know, it's just so discouraging. It's so demoralizing. It's not easy to continue God's work. I mean, in anything we do, you start trying to teach the gospel of the lost, what's going to happen? You're going to get some really discouraging things. You start trying to change your life and and, uh, overcome sin and temptation, you're going to be discouraged. You start trying to work with other brothers and trying to help and encourage them. There's going to be all kinds of opposition and 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 things that are just really disheartening to you. We've got to really work on perseverance. Don't expect serving God to be easy. It's not easy. It's well worth it, and we can rely on God's strength. But it isn't easy. There's nothing worthwhile done in the service of God. They were just kind of do half-asleep. There's going to be discouragements. And the people who get it done are the people who determine they're going to get it done. And here, you know, Nehemiah responded by putting people on the most exposed parts of the wall uh, to kind of defend the wall. And he encourages them to trust in God. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. That's a passage that Joe uh, mentioned for us. I mean, that ultimately is our confidence. Our real strength is in God. And the best way to deal with discouragement and fear is to remember who's with us. When you think about the greatness and power and awesomeness of God, it changes everything. You know, the Lord who is great and awesome is the one we need to remember. And so we fight with trust in God for our families. Um, it's, it's just, it's a challenge. And it takes both a real determination on our part and faith in the great and awesome God. That he is strong enough and loving enough that he will see us through. Thoughts and comments on that section? John? Do
3: you think verse 12 is the Jews um,
1: trying to tell them to stop before they come? Or do you think the are were at coming, I
0: mean, so be ready. Well, I think the Jews in these more exposed outlying areas feel more vulnerable to the oppression and attack of these enemies, and so they are probably wishing they just abandoned the project to where the enemies didn't keep threatening. Uh, they were probably worried about the attack, so they just kept reporting the news to them over and over again. Stephen. idea um, of uh, uh,
1: praying uh, and so trusting the Lord, uh, is there some balance to that? And like Ezra eight, when they they, they fast and they humbled themselves, but well, then he says, "I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen." And in, in their way, since we have told the king the hand of our God is for good, and all those who seek him power We're acting against all those who him. Is there is there a point we made there as well? Where like yes, we need to act in faith. But
3: it was like Ezra felt asked for
0: protection. Yeah, there's a lot of things to say. I mean, one thing is I think he was really just concerned that it would almost discredit uh, their view of God, uh, the enemy's view of God, or the, the you know Persian view of God, if he were to ask for, ask for protection. I, I mean, I think we trust the Lord to the point where we do not give the credit to the protection but if we're in a position to get it or ask for it, we'll use it. You know, we don't refuse to seek when it's appropriate, even governmental protection. You know, Paul appealed to Caesar. You know, he uh, he let it be known he was a Roman citizen, and things like that. Uh, so we're not we're not thinking that the key is the protection. And sometimes it may not be appropriate to ask, but when it is, we'll use it. That's what I, I think situations can be different. And the the um, you know the effect of asking for the protection may be different in different situations. GMI was in a much different position. He could ask for his protection. He was the cupbearer to the king. Somebody got a better answer. Yeah, Brigham. I mean, why
3: did would make a wall?
0: Right, good point. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, very much what I said the other night, there are several more things in the book of Acts, but the two that I thought about were this idea of when God said, you're going to Rome, and then he, Paul tells his nephew, you know, or tells the person to go take my nephew to the commander and tell him about the conspiracy to kill me. And, and when God says, you and everybody on this boat will be spared, and then he says, if they get off the lifeboat, we're in trouble. You know, God's promises and God's involvement does, never means I don't take the natural and normal and proper precautions and security measures and things like that. You know, this is not a fatalistic, well, I just turned it over to God. Now, I don't have to do anything. I, I think we're tempted on both sides of that. Normally, we just don't trust God enough. We're, we're not even thinking about the Lord. We think it's all up to us. But we tend to flee back to the other extreme of thinking this is all God and it's no me. Uh, and, and God wants us to do what we can. All right, so I think our time is up here and uh, we'll stop and continue this uh, this afternoon. Really good discussion. Remember, if you wanted to say some more things about this, we can start with that. I think we've got plenty of time overall in Nehemiah, so we're doing fine with that. Let's go to class 1 and... Make sure you're going to the right teacher. As I mentioned yesterday that on your papers,
1: some of the places are wrong. What you really want to focus on is being in the class that has that teacher for that class. Oh, yeah, we're the to come back.
3: are you?
1: I am going yes. to? We're in the halls. Yeah, right here, right yeah. here. Right
3: here. Yeah. They What? what? I'll try and bring it back. I don't want to scratch something good. Yeah, I won't scratch it. Uh, well, maybe. you need paper? I have this. I have this. I have, to, I, have, to, I, have to, I just this. I have this. I have this. I have Okay,
1: everything is off. Wait, you're
3: Yankees. Yankee? You so? didn't see love? Five virtually, not five. You Yeah, you live in New York the Yeah,
1: you're right. He was I a. uh But. that's Hi. you to roll today? Um, i can get everybody's I, name. is gonna give a talk today. Okay, I have a question. Yes. Um. One
3: of my friends, Sam Bozeman, said that I had to ask you, like, if you if you liked what I had.
1: Well, if you, yeah, I want to hear. I already, the topic I you started. What's your anymore? topic gonna to be? What are you um, gonna talk about? I was just
3: thinking about talking about um, how the disciples have been following a stranger to uh, to. Uh,
1: is maybe the the Are you talking about after Jesus' death and resurrection? Okay.
3: Well, sort of before that, when okay. he called them. Okay, we'll talk about it a more today. You, you're about to teach a passage. Yes. I want to a chance to learn more about the I just I'd like to know how do you know what you know. That's why I Oh, it's cold. Oh. Mm-hmm.